In this episode, we're talking about the society of birds and what is going on above our heads that we are completely unaware of. We answer the questions around how animal society is not that much different from ours. Hi and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts, and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk, and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights, and real life stories beyond the green line we balance along. Hello and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Green Line. I'm your host, Chanel gleason Willey. Our guest today is Paul McDonald, a professor from the University of New England who established the Animal Behaviour and Ecology Lab, as well as being past president of the Australasian Society for the Study of Animal Behaviour and chair of BirdLife Australia's Research and Conservation Committee. I'm talking to Paul about his research into vocal communication in birds and how his research feeds into conversation practices uh, sorry, conservation practices, and can be applied to environmental impact assessment. Hi, Paul. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. No problem. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Can you tell me a bit about your early career and what has led you to study birds? Sure. It's a little bit of a happy accident, but uh, no, I've always been interested in the natural environment and uh, I guess a keen amateur naturalist when I was very small, uh, several years ago. I won't say how many, but it's quite a while back. Um, and yeah, I was just lucky when I, I did my undergraduate at the University of Wollongong, a, a Bachelor of Science degree there, and uh, the academics who were working you know, in a field setting and getting out and about, they were working on seabird colonies and things like that, which really interested me. Uh, and they just happened to use birds as their focal system. So that sort of melded with my, my interest in the natural world and once you sort of start down a path, then you stumble across the next interesting question and so on and so on. And that's how it's kind of evolved. So, um, yeah, always had an interest in birds and that's just blossomed. And I've been very fortunate to have the career that I have. And you're now at UNE. What um, problems are you currently working on? Yeah, I've been at UNE for uh, a bit over 10 years now. Um, I really like working up up here. It's uh, a really nice location in that we're – just a couple of hours from a whole range of different habitats, which really means there's lots of questions we can tackle from, you know, right down uh, on the coast, out through the desert, or a lot of stuff on the tablelands at the moment looking at woodland environments. And we have two main focal points at the moment. One is working on uh, threatened woodland birds, uh, passerines like uh, regent honey eaters, um, brown tree creepers, that sort of uh, thing, the small woodland birds, if you like quite important. And another main project that's just getting up and uh, starting looking at threatened raptors on the region. So uh, square-tailed kites, little eagles, and white-bellied sea eagles. Uh, So that's one side of things, working out where they are and um, the things that might impact them and how we can help them really uh, persist. The flip side of that is more blue sky, I guess, and that's looking at uh, from that conservation angle, how we better understand the behaviour that's driving some of those declines. And noisy miners are one of our key focal species we've been working on for a long time now, uh, and really trying to unpack that society and work out uh, what makes them tick, both from a 
an interesting point of view from the science and the actual behaviour, but also it has conservation impacts given that uh, uh, noisy miners have such a detrimental effect in areas where they're overabundant. If we can work out what uh, what drives their colonies, then perhaps that gives us a bit of insight in how we can better deal with them. So they're probably our two main focuses at the moment. And one of the methods that you use uh, in your research and investigations into all of these birds, I believe, is called bioacoustics. Can you explain what that actually is? Yeah, sure. It's a way of, I guess, enhancing our ability to collect data. Um, as much as I would love to be in the field 24-7 or probably not the last couple of months, actually, to be honest. It's been quite nice being at home and watching the rain. But, uh, yeah, it just becomes difficult to be out there all the time. So one of the new fields that we've been working at uh, for a while now is is bioacoustics, and that's simply just looking at all the sound that's in the environment. And we can break that down into a number of different elements. It might be wind noise or rain noise. Uh, it might be anthropogenic, so human-generated, so traffic, cars going past, or you know, the hum of a city, something like that. They're sort of an asides really that we're, we're looking to control for almost in a lot of this work. What we're actually looking for is the, the biophony, the, the biota that's making that noise. So it might be a bird that's singing, might be insects in the, in the canopy, cicadas, et cetera. Um, and really looking for changes in that. And bioacoustics is the, the study of that and looking at whether we, well, you can slice it in a number of different ways. So you can look at overall sound and see how much activity is in a space. That's really useful for, general biodiversity monitoring, for example. So we might be able to use that to say uh, one area is more active and therefore potentially of more uh, conservation, higher conservation value than another. Uh, we've got projects on that working with the Biodiversity Conservation Trust, for example, uh, scholarship at the moment, uh, looking to get a PhD student on that, working in that area. But you can also drill down into detail and because we have a good understanding of the noisy minor communication system, uh, we're also able to use that to see the impacts that the birds are facing. So I just published a paper this year looking at um, landscapes of fear. So uh, that's a, a term that looks at how birds respond to their environment. We can monitor noisy minor alarm calls directly and see how often they bump into, say, a ground predator versus a raptor or a bird of prey, that sort of thing. So we can get an idea of how, uh, in that paper, we we're looking at how fragmentation has impacted the potential threats that birds encounter. So it's a really powerful technique. It's early days, I think, as it's fair to say, for the field as a whole. So one of the things we're really trying to do at this stage is just just ground truth and, and fine-tune some of those techniques so we get a better handle on what's happening. But um, as that process continues, it's an enormously powerful tool because rather than one person being able to monitor one area when they're out and about, we can set and forget these recorders, if you like, for long periods. Uh, and the biggest example of that we have is uh, the Australian Acoustic Observatory or the, the A2O, which has uh, we have 400 sites around the country and they're recording 24-7. Um, that's a lot of data and enormous file sizes that we have to deal with and that's one of the challenges in the field. But you can imagine over time as we've got budgets, have them out there for, for 10 years at the moment, but particularly over the last couple of years with um, people not being able to get around with COVID uh, or changes due to big fires and, and now floods that we're seeing, um, a lot of the areas that we're interested in, we just can't get to. So having recorders out there long-term gives us a fantastic data set to then draw from. So all of those things, my acoustics are companies. Uh, and 
understanding how we can best use that to answer some really important questions is, is one of our core focus. So the actual equipment that you use to do the recordings, um, based on, I guess, your explanation, it, it must be very different to what we use, for instance, to record traffic noise. So we have the Nagara type um, recorders that we just put out for a few days at a time with the little microphone and the windsock on the, the um, on the top of it. What does your equipment look like? What type is it? Well, it, it varies. Um, it's horses for courses. So the the acoustic observatory uses. Uh, it's actually a Brisbane based company, Frontier Labs, and it's a solar based recorder. So the the lid has a um, an affixed solar panel, and putting that in the right environment that gives us the the power to continue for uh, unlimited deployment. And they're visited either twice or once a year, depending where they are, because some of these sites are quite remote and hard to get to. Um, they also make a smaller module that we often use. So a lot of our local woodland monitoring, we put those out for three, four weeks at a time. Uh, but there's even smaller options that are becoming more readily available. So things like audio moths, which are basically a Raspberry Pi type unit, um, operate on a micro SD card as a recording media, uh, and they can just be put out in a, you, you can buy fancy boxes, but you can just put them in a little clip seal plastic bag as well. Um, so they're the sorts of things. There's really a range depending on your budget and uh, I would say how uh, how long-term the deployment needs to be. So there, there's different options. And, of course, balancing depending on a particular budget for a project, um, it might be better to have more of the cheaper option or if you want longer term and more security in that deployment, maybe you need fewer recorders, but uh, more robust ones that are going to last. So it really depends what you're trying to do, but there's a number of different options now in the market. Hmm. So ecological assessments um, are a big part of what we do here at Moss Environmental. Uh, we use a variety of different techniques for identifying you know, birds, including vocal identification, but you obviously take this much further. Um, so can you tell me what additional information and understanding of your research um, into vocal communication, I guess, what understanding that provides and maybe how we can use that here? Yeah, sure. I think it's um, it, it, there's a number of different layers, I'd say, and that's what I'd encourage all people who are doing in the field is firstly to ground truth the data. So I think we're still at the point where um, a lot of these acoustic environments are I don't think, I think it's fair to say we're not clear on exactly how unique they are. So a result that works really well in woodlands uh, around Armidale in northern New South Wales, for example, can that be directly applied to a site in Victoria? It's still woodland, still eucalypt dominated, but yeah, those ecological communities are potentially quite different with the number of individuals and uh, the type of species, et cetera. How readily transferable are they? And that I think it's fair to say is an unanswered question. So for the moment, I think that combination of the traditional, if you like, on the ground researcher or um, consultant going in there and doing a survey, but simultaneously collecting the audio, I think that's still the way to go at the moment to build up that evidence that, look, this is an index that works, or this is a method that gives you similar data to what someone on the ground would get. Um, I think that's definitely where we are. And that's something that's really quite exciting, I think, to be on the cusp of being able to do that because it, computationally and, and just dealing with these large file sizes and, you know, what do you do with a hundred hours of audio? You know, that's, uh, yeah, paying someone for six months to sit there, listen to it is not particularly efficient. Um, so we need to be able to use, harness that computer power to do that. So that's the real challenge. Um, 
but I think we're there. I think there's enough coming out that the techniques are there. It's just now a matter of seeing, okay, what's been shown to work in the the States or Europe, for example, or other parts of Australia, there's a number of really interesting papers that have come out and it's not just my group working on this. How do we apply that in the local area? And I think that's really the way forward. So I would encourage, um, you know, there's only a limit to what so many people could do and an individual can do. So I think it's a real field where collaboration is important and, you know, we can learn from each other to hasten that process and look to apply things, you know, is something that works one year, can we just roll it out the subsequent year or, for example, with a changing drought uh, going now into wet years, do we need to recalibrate and start again or is it just a simple matter of adjusting the indices? So all those types of things, I think, are open questions and really keen to work with people to to look at that. And that's something we hope the projects like the observatory can do. Um, um, Woodland Monitoring is really focusing in on that. As I said, we've got really good relationships with BCT and uh, local land services, um, you know, looking at what what's left and what we have in the area and uh, trying to identify areas of, of concern because there are a number of taxa that um, are not doing well, unfortunately. So anything we can do to uh, help turn that around, particularly as conditions improve following drought, uh, is definitely worth pursuing in my view. Hmm. And what have you found out through your research about the factors that shape the um, sociality in, in complex bird societies? Yeah, well, that's where we're, I guess, the flip side of things. And uh, I've always had a background. Um, you know, my early projects were trying to identify right back in the honours days and undergraduate days, you know, identify vocal repertoires. So in effect, work out what the birds were doing, were saying, if you like, uh, and identify which call they were using and, and what that actually meant. Um, so I've always had an interest in that. And to understand sociality, I think vocal communication for a lot of species is really important in that. So, and I'll classify humans as part of that. Uh, so much of what the information transfer between individuals is acoustically based um, and, and birds are no different. So it could be really overwhelming trying to understand what's happening when, you know, particularly our focal study species, noisy miners, you've got 20 miners all in a crobbery or bouncing around the top of a tree. That's um, incredibly difficult to work out what's happening from a, uh, a quick standpoint, but vocal communication gives us a window into that. So once we start separating calls that might be used to signal detection of a predator, or perhaps we have female only calls that, um, in a noisy minor society, the females are territorial. So breeding females uh, have a particular vocalization they use to basically say, this is my patch, uh, stay away. But I'm sure in words I can't use on this podcast in equivalence, but yeah, that sort of approach of just, um, once you understand that vocal communication, it, it, it brings a bit of order, I guess, to the discussion, um, to the observation in terms of exactly what's happening and helps you classify what's happening, uh, in a more quantitative context, once you do that, then you can really start to say, okay, once you're aware of what's happening, you know, who helps who, who, where's the conflict in that society and who's, um, uh, you know, the opposite of helping and actually direct conflict and agonistic interactions, etc. You know, all those things then become possible to unpack. So the noisy minor system has been fascinating in that context in that we know the birds, um, various research over the years, we know they have individual vocal structures. So prior to, um, it's now easy with your phone, it will flash up with who's calling. But in the old days, you used to be able to pick up the phone and someone would say hello, but your brain was able to recognize, oh yeah, that's you know, mom or dad or whoever it might be, a familiar voice. 
you know, the birds have something similar. So there's something unique to that individual uh, and the birds are able to cue in on that. So identifying those sorts of relationships lets us really unpack the society in that um, we know what the birds are hearing and interpreting. So if one bird calls out a recruitment call, you know, found a predator, basically come help me evict it um, in uh, human terms, in inverted commas, um, we can look at which birds respond to that and which birds don't, for example. So it gives us an understanding of how those societies work. And a noisy minor sister is a fantastic one for that because it's a combination of both um, related individuals working together and there's good evolutionary reasons for that in terms of shared genes between individuals. So if you help your relative, you're, from an evolutionary terms, sort of helping part of yourself, if you like. Um, but also in noisy minor sister, it's a complex society because that breaks down and they're just as likely to bump into non-relatives as they are relatives. So in terms of an evolutionary term, that becomes quite difficult and it's much like you, um, uh, you know, taking a bus or something like that and you've got a, uh, a sibling, for example, asking for your seat on the bus or a relative stranger, you know, who would you get give up your seat for? You know, those sorts of questions uh, that impact how we operate in human society, we can model and uh, also study in noisy minor society. So it's, it's a really powerful system to work with. And I guess that's what makes noisy minor society so interesting, isn't it? Because their particular bird society is actually similar to our own. Uh, can you describe how? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's. I think if you think of a colony, um, it, so we would call a, 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 a flock or a, an area occupied by mollies, by noisy miners rather is, is referred to as a colony. And within that you have coteries or tribes is probably an easier way to think about it. So we have breeding, <clears throat> breeding pairs. Um, as I said, it's the breeding females that maintain the territories. So if you can imagine a um, you know, a circle that encompasses the area occupied by miners um, in a patch of woodland. You know, then imagine dots throughout that are where the uh, individual breeding females are occupying their territories and defending. We've got breeding males that are associated with each of those breeding females, but then it becomes far more complex. So then you have retained offspring and other individuals that are actually breeding but help the breeding pairs. So that's where you get that tribal system. So uh, it's not always relatives, but you might have a male that's not breeding helping to raise the offspring of another bird. Uh, it might be a relative, so it might be helping you know, its mother raise the next generation or it might be completely unrelated, which is really quite unusual and that uh, non-relative helping is why we term the complex as, uh, sorry, the society as a complex one. And that's what we see in things like humans or chimps or dolphins, things like that, uh, which are far more difficult to study. So that's why noisy miners are a, a nice system. So it enables us to really, the power of that system is it enables us to untangle uh, cooperation between relatives, which is important, but from an evolutionary term, well, I guess I guess we could say boring to a certain extent because we know why why that happens. Um, the more interesting, from my point of view at least, is that cooperation, cooperation rather between non-relatives because that still we really still don't understand that well in terms of why that happens to the degree it does. And in societies like noisy miners, it's equally common as helping among relatives. So that just makes them really interesting from that sociality point of view, and, and hence our work on them over the years. And with your your work, I guess, have you got any preliminary findings uh, as to 
why they've become a more complex society than other bird species. Um, you know, why has evolution pushed them towards that? Do you have any initial findings? Yeah, I think it's um, across a number of our uh, of our work and work from others. It's a very successful strategy. Uh, if you think about um, occupying areas, there's a number of different ways individuals can can access resources. So if we just pick food as a um, a simple one to think about and envisage. A noisy minor colony is able to fend a high-quality area. So their strategy of evicting other, uh, particularly birds, but they'll they'll mob anything from koalas, echidnas, whatever they can find, they'll mob and try and drive out of their colony. But that enables them to monopolise that resources. So if you think about an individual honey eater on its own, even if it is occupying a tree, it's not going to have much luck evicting others. They just move away and sort of come back in when it's not looking, if you like. So that in terms of monopolizing or, or hogging the resources, if you like, that's not a very successful strategy. But compare that to a, a social system where you might have 100, 150 birds all working together, that becomes a really powerful, really successful way of um, owning a patch of land, if you like, in terms of a patch of woodland forest uh, and keeping everything else out. So that's why they're also interesting and, and such a conservation concern because they're they're so successful and um, they really prefer uh, that mixed mosaic woodland where you've got patches, open patches for them to forage in, but still woodland areas to, to breed in. Uh, so that's a lot a lot of the modern landscape when we look around uh, southeastern Australia particularly. Uh, that's a lot of what we've got left. So in good conditions, uh, noisy miners are, are increasing in their um, both their range and also density within the occupied range. Uh, and one of the reasons they're able to do that is that successful ability to move into an area and basically kick everything else out and uh, keep it for themselves. And I guess this comes into uh, what we do here a lot is environmental impact assessment in that maybe we need to be looking more closely at those opportunistic species um, in our EIAs. So do you have any recommendations as to what additional things we might start to look at um, when we are trying to assess a, a development, for example, that um, is potentially going to be happening near a woodland area? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, a big area and another area where we're looking at where in terms of active control of miners and uh, I should say that direct culling has been quite mixed in its results. So they're also quite good at moving through the landscape um, Again, fascinating from a social side of things, how they find that an area is now vacant. And, you know, we've had cases where we've uh, culled a colony from an area in less than an hour. Uh, you can literally hear the, the ute door shutting and driving off. And then within 40 minutes, we've had miners move into an area from another colony. So that's amazing. Um, it, it is quite fascinating. Um, but from a conservation point of view, where you're trying to open up some of these remaining high quality remnants and get miners out of them, it remains quite challenging. So, in terms of what can be done now, I think the habitat requirements of miners and what they like in terms of that open area with lots of edges and boundaries between woodland and um, more open, say, grazing areas, things like that, uh, we definitely need to not create more of those. We need to make sure that we're not enhancing that ideal miner habitat, if you like. And in key habitats where miners already are, longer-term strategies like uh, replanting, uh, connecting those and, and making some of those patches um, more integrated with the other remaining vegetation, but also enhancing the quality of those patches so that 
they're not subject to dieback, for example, and we're not losing them, uh, I think is really important. So I would argue that we need uh, a mixture of you know, both short and long-term strategies here where in the short term, things like culling in areas where um, minor emigration is, is less likely is still a valuable tool, I think, uh, as unsavoury as it might be, I think we're at the point where that is required in lot, some of these areas, particularly you know, if we have breeding regent honey eaters or a threatened taxa like that, that um, an urgent intervention might be needed. I think that's important. But also keeping an eye to that longer-term strategy of, of revegetating some of these areas to ensure that we don't have lots of small, um, relatively open patches that, that miners really prefer. So, um, And the benefit of that is that those types of habitat requirements are not not unique to miners and pastoring birds. That has flown benefits to a number of you know, pretty much all faunal woodland taxa that we're thinking about, whether that's herps or um, mammals, whatever it might be. So I think that holistic approach, uh, while it's difficult to implement and it's a, it is a long-term strategy that we need to think about how we do effectively, it's, it's certainly one that's likely to yield benefits for a whole range of taxa, so well worth doing in my view. Hmm. Now, as part of the university zoology course um, that you head up, you offer students a research trip to Botswana. Why is, do you take um, students there? Why have you chosen Botswana? Yeah, that's um, unfortunately been on hold for a couple of years now with COVID, but we're looking to restart that in 2023 um, is the plan. Uh, it, it's really it's been spectacularly successful, I would say, and we have a really good strike rate of, of those students going on to, to further study or uh, higher degrees and becoming embedded in the real research side of things. But even students who don't go on and uh, finish at the undergrad level, it's very really u- useful for them, giving them some hands-on experience. And I think it's worth doing because it, it is a lot of paperwork and, and quite challenging. Um, there's all sorts of uh, interesting things that can happen. Um, but um for me, there, there's two benefits. One is we can really immerse people in in the discipline. So we're sort of three and a half weeks in the field, uh, very little. Some of these areas are quite remote, so you're just working as a team. And it's analogous to what you guys might be doing to to work in an area or do a, a survey in a particular area, for example. You, you come in, uh, it's intensive work, uh, so definitely not nine to five. So we're there on the go while we're there and making the most of it. Um it really gets a chance to, to practice those skills and, and take ownership of that data as well. The the project is set up or the unit is set up so that it's not just a, a, a jolly and they go on the trip and put their feet up. They're, they're there working, collecting data and then expected to analyse and write that up when they come back. Um, so just immersing them and giving them three weeks away from everything else just to uh, just to enjoy the that data collection is, is fantastic. And the reason why we go overseas is... Um, removing people from their uh, familiar context, if you like, is a really useful learning tool. Um, I find it quite, um, it's far easier to describe the patterns that are happening and explain, um, you know, overgrazing, you know, with elephants looking at um, Mapani woodland or something like that, which is completely alien to um, your typical Australian um, compared to, you know, looking at ruse or something like that. Um, You know, with the students, it's hard to, there's so much assumed knowledge and they've grown up with that and they're familiar with it, and, you know, at least subconsciously, oh, yeah, we know all about that. Um, dropping them into a completely new setting 
well, I shouldn't say dropping, we, we support that learning, but you know, throwing them into a, uh, a new environment that's completely new, uh, all those assumptions fall to the wayside, we find, and it's a, a much better teaching tool. And we find the reverse is true as well. Once they come back from that, they're able to apply that in the local setting and, and really understand uh, in more detail what's happening locally. So I think it's useful. And also it's good, I think, for uh, ecology students to have a broad range of what's happening around the world, you know, to understand those different habitats too. I think that's also useful. So, yeah, it's, it's well worth the paperwork, I think. Yeah. And what have you found about the difference in the interactions of sub-Saharan African animals versus Australian animals and the way they interact here? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a different, uh, different scale for one, obviously. Uh, it's uh, quite interesting to be you know, surrounded by big herds of, of um, you know, buffalo or, or elephant um, or even just some of the you know, zebras and so on. It's, uh, it's quite amazing. Some of the areas we go to are uh, yeah, it's the biggest uh, zebra movement or biggest large herbivore movement uh, you know, in Africa. So being able to see you know, zebra moving from um, Maipan up into the Chobe, for example, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, so the scale is very different, but also productivity, I think, is um, one of the things that, that really stands out to from an Australian perspective because it's a lot of Botswana is sand and um it just looks like you're almost on a coastal sand dune in a different colour sand, but that sort of environment in lots of areas. Uh, yet it's just so incredibly productive. The, the bird life is um, enormous and you have lots of mammals running around uh, and very big ones. So that's, uh, I think, one of the key differences. And given Australia is so um, limited in our mammal diversity, even more so since European settlement, it's it's good, I think, for students to move into an, a system where it's mammal dominated rather than, um, you know, we sort of primarily ruse that you're seeing in, um, in Australia, for example. Uh, so I think they really jump out as the main differences and, and being able to see that in action, I think is, um, uh, one of the great things about Africa, uh, and sub-Saharan Africa in particular. And bringing it back to our own local backyards now, do you have, um, any recommendations as to how the general population can help our native bird societies from our own backyards? Yeah, I think it's um, being part of those communities, so getting involved and uh, looking at local bird groups wherever you are or uh, land care groups, et cetera, and getting uh, some information on what you might be able to do. There's plenty of people out there that are, are keen to discuss options and have some knowledge of what to do. I think one of the core things that we should all be looking out for in uh, southeast Australia in particular is is that noisy minor habitat. So our, our tendency to plant you know, a whole heap of grevilleas or something like that that are providing nectar year-round and creating perfect noisy minor breeding habitat and foraging habitat in your backyard, um, not the greatest thing to be doing uh, as a whole. Uh, so having a more diverse um uh, I guess, you know, garden, whether that's a, a backyard in suburbia or you've got a larger property and you can look at more um, integrated woodland management, those sorts of things I think are important. Um, very clearly we've got uh, a change in biodiversity across uh, across this area and declines in lots of different taxa and it's, it's a falsehood, I think, to assume that National parks will be the answer and, and that's all we need and everything else will take care of itself. I think the evidence is very clear that uh, private actions are, are just as important uh, and can make a real difference. So 
just taking those in and it's not necessarily wholesale changes where we're expecting people to you know create a boxy <laughs> a box woodland uh in their backyard in the middle of town um that's not what's required but just a you know, subtle difference so it might be just providing some understory so smaller birds can things like wrens and so on can persist in your yard even if you do have the larger um more aggressive honey eaters they've got somewhere to go that will enable them still to use that and you know that enhances fairy wren, thornbill, diversity, et cetera, uh, which is quite useful for and has flow-on effects for how your garden might operate. So there's small things like that that if we get uptake across the general population can make a really big inference, um, and I think that's really critical. Well, Paul, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you today, and I've learned a lot, so thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's been great. That wraps up this episode of Beyond the Green Line. Thanks for listening. This has been Chanel gleason Willie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking green.